0: Thank you for standing by, and welcome to the Island Pharmaceuticals First Quarter 2021 Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you'll need to press star 1 on your telephone. As a reminder, today's program is being recorded. And now I'd like to introduce your host for today's program, Christine Lindenboom, Senior Vice President of Investor Relations and Corporate Communications. Please go ahead.
1: Good morning, I'm Christine Lindenboom, Senior Vice President of Investor Relations and Corporate Communications at El With me today on the phone are John Marignori, Chief Executive Officer, Tilda Tangler, Chief Commercial Officer, Okshay Vaisnau, President of R&D, Jeff Fulton, Chief Financial Officer, and Yvonne Greenstreet, President and Chief Operating Officer. For those of you participating via conference call, the accompanying slides can be accessed by going to the events section of the Investors page of our website, investors.elnylum.com slash events. During today's call, as outlined in slide two, John will provide some introductory remarks in general context. Clover will provide an update on our global com- commercial progress, Akshay will re- review recent clinical and preclinical updates, Jeff will review our financials, and Yvonne will provide a brief summary of upcoming milestones before opening the call to your questions. So I'd like to remind you that this call will contain remarks concerning Lnylam's future expectations, plans, and prospects which constitute forward-looking statements for the purposes of the safe harbor provision under the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Actual results may differ materially from those indicated by these forward-looking statements as a result of various important factors, including those discussed in our most recent annual report on file with the SEC. In addition, any forward-looking statements represent our views only as of the date of this recording and should not be relied upon as representing our views as of any subsequent date. We specifically disclaim any obligation to update such statements. With that, I'd like to turn the call over to John. John?
2: Thanks, Christine, and thank you, everyone, for joining the call today. 2021 is off to a great start for Almylo, with four approved RNAi therapeutics now helping patients around the world, and more in our pipeline poised to do the same in the coming years. To start, our teams delivered steady, ongoing commercial execution and continued revenue growth, including 13% quarterly growth for patro with our first triple-digit revenue quarter and an impressive initial uptake for Oxlumo in its first full quarter on the market. On the pipeline side, the full positive results from the Helios A phase 3 study of Butriceran were presented last week, and we announced that we have filed an NDA for Ran with the FDA bringing us a step closer to the potential approval of this important asset in our TTR franchise. We're also excited to have announced today that we expect the Helios B study of vitriceran in ATTR patients with cardiomyopathy to complete enrollment later this year, earlier than previously anticipated. Regarding our broader corporate strategy, we announced in January a new set of five-year goals, Almilum P to the fifth by 25, highlighting a bold vision for Almilum with transformative medicines in both rare and common diseases for patients around the world, supported by additional growth through label expansion, a robust and high-yielding pipeline of first and or best-in-class product candidates from our organic product engine, exceptional financial performance with over 40% revenue CAGR through year-end 2025, And sustainable non-gap profitability achieved within the period. At Almilam, we continue to be guided by our challenge accepted philosophy, which underpins our commitment to tackling unprecedented and complex challenges, taking courageous action, and using our business as a force of good. As a result, we are extremely proud to have released this quarter our first corporate responsibility summary. As scientific pioneers, corporate leaders, and global citizens, Almilam has long been committed to using our business as a force of good, beyond our core mission of developing innovative medicine. If you haven't already, I encourage you to visit our website to review the exciting progress and commitments we've made. So with that, I'll now turn the call over to Tolga for a review of our commercial performance.
3: Tolga? Thanks, John, and good morning, everyone. Let's get started with a review of our commercial performance from the first quarter. In Q1, despite COVID headwinds, particularly in the U.S., we were able to achieve strong results. For Ampatra, we achieved $102 million in global net product revenues in the first quarter, and we ended the quarter with over 1,500 patients on commercial treatments. In the U.S., we continue to see progress on many fronts, including steady and continuous growth in patients, as well as notable growth in new prescribers across specialties, seeing patients with HATTR polyneuropathy. to treatment remains stable at pre-COVID levels, and we continue to observe a trend of HCP choice in concomitant use of Ampatro to treat polyneuropathy, along with the use of a TTR stabilizer for cardiomyopathy in mixed phenotype HATTR amyloidosis patients. Much of our continuous growth in Ampatro revenue is driven by increased HATTR diagnosis rates, which we believe is due to wider availability of PIP scans. Access is another important highlight with confirmed access to OnPetro for over 98% of covered lives. With regard to the rest of the world, market access has now been achieved in over 30 countries worldwide, including additional global expansion with achievement of regulatory approval in Taiwan. In 2021, we expect steady and continued growth for Ompetro, driven mostly by new patient findings. Moving to Givlari, we achieved $25 million in global net product revenues in the first quarter. And as of March 31st, we attained 225 patients worldwide on commercial therapy. Relative to where we ended 2020 and after significant strength initial launch quarters, Q1 of this year was softer than anticipated in terms of Givlari new patient ads, likely due to reduced patient flow through the healthcare system in the U.S. due to COVID. However, we did observe a notable uptick in March toward the end of the quarter, and patient compliance remained strong at over 90%. So we continue to be optimistic about steady and continuous growth for Givlari for the rest of the year and beyond especially with geographic expansion from expected pricing and reimbursement in multiple European countries. In the US, we continue to make strong progress in establishing VVAs for Givlari with over 10 finalized to date with commercial payers and confirmed access for over 98% of covered US lives with no pushback or headwinds. In terms of prescribers, we observed ongoing expansion of the base, including new riders with a significant number of prescriptions coming from community centers, in addition to those coming out of centers of excellence. As noted earlier, geographic expansion around the world will be a driver for Givlari this year, and we continue to make great progress with market access efforts across the Simea region. This includes our recent launch in Italy. We've also received approval in Switzerland, and we believe our Japan JNDA review is on track for approval mid-year. Moving to Oxlumo, we're thrilled with the strong initial demand observed in its first full quarter of launch. We achieved $9 million in global net product revenues in the first quarter. Of course, with this being our first full quarter of Oxlumo launch, we also benefited from the loading dose portion of the overall treatment regimen. We also received over 30 start forms in the US since launch and attained approximately 50 patients on commercial Oxlumo treatment in the U.S. and E.U. as of March 31st. Our market access efforts are progressing very well for Oxlomo, with over five EBAs finalized to date with commercial payers and confirmed access already for about two-thirds of covered U.S. lives. Globally, we continue to make strong progress across the CMEA region with a recent launch in Germany, ATU supply in France, and named patient sales in other countries. At this early stage of launch, we're very pleased to see broad utilization of Oxlumo across age groups and EGFR categories. We're encouraged by the initial uptake in both the pediatric and adult patient segments, and we think this bodes well for the long-term potential of Oxlumo. In conclusion, we believe 2021 is off to a great start as we continue to achieve steady growth across our wholly owned commercial portfolio. With that, I will now turn it over to Akshay to review our recent R&D and pipeline progress. Akshay? Thanks,
4: Tolga, and good morning, everyone. I'll start with our efforts in ATTR amyloidosis, where we're advancing our two product candidates, patisiran and Vucrisran. With Petisran, we're committed to expanding the product's label for the treatment of cardiomyopathy in both hereditary and wild-type ATTR amyloidosis patients. To this end, we're conducting the Apollo B Phase 3 study. We continue to enroll patients in Apollo B and continue to expect completion of the enrollment in early 2021, which would put us on track for a top line readout in mid-2022. We're also advancing Butrisran, which is delivered by a quarterly subcutaneous injection. Here, we're conducting two Phase 3 studies. The first is Helios A, evaluating butriceran in amyloidosis patients with polyneuropathy, in hat amyloidosis patients with polyneuropathy. Just over a week ago at the American Academy of Neurology Conference, we presented our positive full nine-month results, which I'll briefly recap here. On the primary endpoint of change in plus 7 from baseline at nine months, butriceran treatment resulted in a 17-point mean treatment benefit relative to the external placebo group from the Apollo Phase three study of Petisran. The effect was highly significant, indicating robustness of the treatment effect. Also, the mean change in MnS-Plus-7 relative to baseline was a negative value, indicating improvement, providing evidence that, like Petisran, Metricran not only halts neurop- neuropathy progression, but also achieved reversal of neuropathy symptoms relative to baseline in the majority of patients in its pivotal trial. As to the key secondary endpoint change in Norfolk quality of life score at nine months relative to baseline, vitricerine-treated patients demonstrated a mean improvement in quality of life relative to the external placebo arm. Another important secondary endpoint, the 10-meter walk test measuring gait speed, was stable in the vitricerine arm at month nine relative to baseline, compared to demonstrate worsening in gait speed from baseline for the external placebo group. We also analyzed the exploratory endpoint of NT-proBNP, a marker of cardiac stress. Whilst the external placebo group showed an increase or worsening in NT-proBNP levels over nine months, levels of this marker in the vitriceran group were stable over nine months and did not decline, supporting further evaluation of vitriceran effects on cardiomyopathy manifestations of disease. Importantly, vitriceran demonstrated an encouraging safety and tolerability profile. There were no drug-related discontinuations or deaths. There were two serious adverse events or SAEs deemed, relate, deemed related to butrisran by the study investigator consisting of dyslipidemia and an E. coli urinary tract infection. Treatment-emergent adverse events occurring in 10% or more of patients receiving butrisran included diarrhea, pain in extremity, fall and urinary tract infections, each occurring at a similar or lower rate compared with the external placebo group in Apollo. Injection site reactions were reported in five patients, or 4.1%, and were all mild and transient. We're thrilled with these results and have now filed our NDA with the FDA for the treatment of HAT amyloidosis patients with polyneuropathy and look forward to reporting top-line results from the 18-month analysis in late 2021 which will also further characterize vitriceran's impact on exploratory cardiac endpoints. The second phase three vitriceran study is Helios B, being conducted in hereditary and wild-type AT amyloidosis patients with cardiomyopathy. As John noted, we announced today that due to the strong pace of enrollment in the study, we now expect to complete enrollment in late 2021, well ahead of our prior expectations. Lastly, for vitriceran, We plan to initiate our study of a biannual dosing regimen for ran in the coming weeks. Let's now move on to lumaceran, our RAI therapeutic recently approved in the EU and US as the first treatment for primary hyperoxaluria type 1 or PH1. Here, we continue to dose PH1 patients with advanced renal disease in the fully enrolled Illuminate C phase 3 study and remain on track to report top-line results in mid-2021. As you know, we have two additional late-stage programs that are in development with partners. This includes LECVIO, or Enclisran, partnered with Novartis, which was approved last year in the EU for the treatment of adults with hypercholesterolemia or mixed dyslipidemia. LECVIO marks the first RNAi therapeutic approved for a prevalent condition. Novartis received a CRL from the FDA due to unresolved facility inspection-related conditions at a third-party manufacturing facility in Europe. The FDA has not raised any concerns related to the efficacy or safety of inclisiran, and Novartis plans to submit its response in Q2 or Q3 2021. We're confident that Novartis will do everything it can to accelerate this process. Our late-stage programs also include in development for hemophilia A or B, with or without inhibitors partnered with Sanofi. Sanofi mentioned this week that all health authorities Relevant to the program, have approved re of FatusRAN and a majority of patients have resumed dosing. They intend to share data from initial clinical trials at medical conferences later this year and/or early next year. Furthermore, following interactions with the FDA, Sanofi is planning for a U.S. submission in the second half of 2022, once data for the revised dose regimen are available. Now, in addition to our late-stage clinical programs, we believe we've also been making great progress with our early and mid-stage programs. One of the exciting parts of our story now is the expansion of RNAi Therapeutics beyond rare diseases into prevalent disease opportunities. We believe now is the time to address many unmet needs in common disease settings such as hypertension, NASH, gout, and diabetes, amongst others, and we believe the pharmacological properties of RNAi Therapeutics provide the foundation for success. Our program for hypertension is a great example. LNAGT is our investigational RNAi therapeutic targeting the genetically validated target angiotensinogen for the treatment of hypertension. We reported additional interim results from the phase one study a couple of weeks back in which patients treated with single doses of LNAGT at 100 milligrams or higher experienced durable reductions in serum AGT of more than 90% through 12 weeks. Reductions in 24-hour systolic blood pressure of more than 15 millimeters of mercury were achieved with LNAGT as monotherapy. LNAGT was also shown to be generally well tolerated. These durable pharmacologic effects may support tonic control of blood pressure with once quarterly and potentially biannual dosing, and we look forward to advancing LNAGT into our Phase 2 cardiac program planned to be initiated in mid-2021. Moving on, we're also advancing LNHSD in collaboration with our partner, partners at Regeneron for the treatment of NASH. We believe that RNAi-mediated knockdown of HSD17b13 will phenocopy the genetic loss of function findings, reducing in- hepatic inflammation, injury, and fibrosis in NASH patients. Enrollment and dosing continues in the phase one study of LNHSD. We also continue to make good progress on our many preclinical RNAi therapeutic opportunities beyond the liver. Notably, we continue to advance our CNS and ocular efforts with Regeneron. Our APP program remains on track for a CTA filing in mid-2021, becoming the first RNAi therapeutic for CNS disease to start clinical testing. And with that, let me now turn it over to Jeff to review our financial results. Jeff? Thanks, Akshay, and good morning, everyone.
5: I'm pleased to be presenting Al Q1 2021 financial results. As Tolga highlighted, it was another very strong quarter of commercial execution with excellent results. Turning to our results first for OnPatro, we generated $102 million in net revenue for the quarter, representing 13% growth from the fourth quarter of 2020 and 53% growth compared with Q1 2020. This marks the third consecutive quarter of double-digit quarter-on-quarter growth following one quarter of flattened growth we experienced during the onset of the pandemic in Q2 of last year. U.S. on Patro sales increased 15% versus Q4 2020 and were primarily impacted by the following, an approximate 4% increase in demand driven by the addition of new patients on therapy, an increase of inventory in the distribution channel with inventory increasing from approximately one week at the end of 2020 to approximately two weeks at the end of Q1, and a lower level of gross-to-net deductions in the third quarter compared with Q4 2020. Consistent with full-year 2020, we expect gross-to-net deductions will remain in the mid-20s globally for UNPATRO in 2021. In our international markets, patro performance remains strong with growth of 11% versus Q4 2020, primarily driven by increased patient demand in our five major markets in Europe. Results in Japan were unfavorably impacted by a reduction of inventory at our distributor during Q1. Turning to our results for GiveLauri, we generated $24.7 million in net revenue in Q1, representing 11% growth compared to the fourth quarter of 2020, driven by ongoing launches in the U.S. and Europe. Reported results in the U.S. were unfavorably impacted by an increase in gross to net sales deductions in Q1 compared with Q4. With Oxlumo, we had a strong first full quarter of sales, generating 9.1 million in net revenue in the quarter. Turning now to a summary of our full P&L results for the quarter. Total combined product sales in the first quarter were 135.8 million, representing 89% growth versus Q1 2020. Net revenue from collaborations for the quarter was 41.8 million a significant increase from Q1 last year, primarily due to revenue recognized from our Regeneron collaboration. Gross margin on total revenues was 83% for the quarter, down from 87% in Q1 2020, primarily due to lower margins on collaboration revenues in the quarter. Our combined non-GAAP R&D and SD&A expenses for the quarter increased modestly at 6% versus Q1 2020. Key drivers of the increase were additional R&D investment in advancing our late-stage pipeline programs, and increased SG&A investment to support the launch of Oxlumo. Our non-GAAP operating loss for the quarter decreased by approximately 45 million versus the same period in 2020, driven by strong top-line growth and moderate growth in operating expenses. Q1 also represents the fifth consecutive quarter that we've delivered an improvement in our non-GAAP operating loss and clearly signals the path we're on towards profitability. Lastly, turning to our financial guidance. Following our strong Q1 results, we remain confident in our full year outlook and are reiterating the financial guidance we provided on our Q4 results call in February. Starting with net product revenues, we anticipate combined net product revenues for our three commercialized products will be between 610 and 660 million our guidance for net revenue from collaborations and royalty is a range between 150 and 200 million and our guidance for combined non-GAAP r&d and sgna expenses is a range between 1 billion 175 million and 1 with that I'll now turn the call over to Yvonne to review our upcoming milestones
6: Yvonne? thanks Jeff and hello everyone We've already achieved important milestones in 2021. And as we look ahead, there are plenty of catalysts queued up for the next 12 to 24 months. Firstly, within our TTR franchise, we expect to complete enrollment in the phase three Apollo B study of the T-Sran early this year, setting up top line results in mid 2022. With the T-Sran, we're on track to initiate data generation for a biannual dosing regimen in mid 2021 followed later in 2021 by presentation of 18-month top-line results in Helios A. And as we've announced today, we can look forward to completion of enrollment in Helios B later this year. For Givlari, we look forward to an important regulatory milestone with its potential approval in Japan mid-year. Turning to Oxlumo, we anticipate an approval in Brazil in mid-2021. Upcoming clinical milestones will also include top-line results in the Phase 3 Illuminate-C study in mid-2021, as well as initiation of a Phase 2 study for recurrent renal stones in late 2021. This Phase 2 study will be important for life cycle management of Oxlumo with the potential to significantly expand the overall opportunity. Our early and mid-stage pipeline has lots in store as well. The Semdiceran enrollment and dozing continues in the Phase 2 monotherapy study in IgA nephropathy, and dosing continues in the phase one combo study with Pozolimab in collaboration with Regeneron. Our partners at VIR continue to enroll and dose AIMHBVO2 in a phase two combo trial with pegylated interferon alpha. And at Dyserna, our partners continue to advance for AAT deficiency liver disease arn AGT is on track to enter Phase 2 mid-year with the start of the cardiac program in hypertension. And we're very excited about the planned filing in mid-2021 of our first CNS-CPA for ARN-APP. This sets us up for potential initial CNS proof of concept data in 2022. So needless to say, our NILIN has much to look forward to in the coming quarters, as we execute on these key catalysts across our pipeline and platform, and the first quarter marks a strong start with regard to our nylon piece of fifth times 25 goals outlined in January. Let me now turn it back to Christine to coordinate our Q&A session. Christine?
1: Thank you, Yvonne. Operator, we will now open the call for your questions. To those dialed in, we would like to ask you to limit yourself to one question each and then get back in the queue if you have additional questions.
0: Certainly, ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question at this time, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you'd like to move yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Our first question comes from the line of Tazin Ahmed from Bank of America. Your question, please.
7: Hi, good morning, guys. Thanks so much for taking my question. Um, uh, good news on the enrollment rate for Helios B. I just wanted to get a little bit of color, if you could provide any, on um, why you think it was able to it is enrolling faster than you previously anticipated, and does that give you a better sense of when we could see the uh, data at least at the top line level readout? Thank you
2: that's that's thank you to and, and we're also very excited about the progress on on Helios B. Um, I think it really um it really is supported by the enthusiasm in the community for butatrice ran as a, as a once quarterly Sub Q um, medicine for um, for ATTR amyloidosis with cardiomyopathy, in, which is what we're evaluating in that phase three study. Um, so really, really good, and obviously there's an opportunity for biannual dosing as well, uh, um, pending those results. So um, let me turn it over to Akshay to comment really on on his perspectives on that,
4: Akshay. Yeah, just building on what you said, John, um, you know, first and foremost, I'd say the outstanding work of our clinical operations team, particularly during this very stressful and remarkable COVID period, um, I think it's also a testament to our global reach in the TTR space through our work in hat amyloidosis with polyneuropathy. Many of the investigators uh, we know because they work in both diseases, HATTR and the ATTR cardiomyopathy. Um and I think they're very excited about the possibility of our drugs in in uh, wild type TTL cardiomyopathy. Mm-hmm. Um and then of course, you know, with our global reach we've gone to many sites where there's no access to uh approved drugs like to families, for example, uh for wild type TTL cardiomyopathy. And so people are very motivated to help study um both on on Patro and Boutriceran in, in that in that setting. So um, delighted with our own in-house efforts, and I think there's a tremendous therapy rationale for our agents in those diseases and um, wonderful collaboration with the investigators mm-hmm. and the
2: sites. And, Sasin, to your question about timing for for results, um, you know, we're not giving any guidance at this point. Um, it would be premature to do that, but we, we are planning an interim analysis, and we are in planning on discussions with regulators to lock down exactly what the design would be of that, uh, of that interim analysis. And when we have more clarity on that. We can provide it to you at that time. Otherwise, um, you, you probably remember that the Helios B study has a 30-month endpoint. So the, the, you know, without the interim analysis, it would go 30 months, uh, past the point of, uh, of, uh, uh enrollment being completed.
1: Okay. Thanks, John.
0: Thank you. Our next question comes in the line. Maury Redkoff from Jeffries. Your question, please.
5: Hi, good morning everyone, and uh, congrats on the update today. Um, just wondering if you can provide a, a breakdown on, on uh, how many on patro patients are on concurrent use with uh, stabilizers and um, any specifics on switches as well.
2: Yeah, let me let me hand it over to 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 Toga on that. Um, and, and he can give you some framing around what we see in the U.S. and what we see in the rest of the world, which is which is very important there. But just before I hand it over, obviously the the in, in all cases the use of onpatro is for the treatment of the polyneuropathy um, in the hereditary uh, ATTR disease. Um, so that's that's an important uh, reminder as well. Tolga, do you want to go ahead and comment uh, on some of these dyna- market
3: dynamics that we observe? Sure, John, and thank you, and hi, Maury. Um, yeah, so as, as John indicated, uh, we are obviously indicated for polyneuropathy, which actually makes the difference between different geographies. As you may know, uh, on petro is one of the, the only other stabilizers, Then there's no, um, uh, sorry, silencers, and there's no stabilizer indicated for polyneuropathy in the U.S. There we do see for mixed phenotype patients for HATTR, uh, and those numbers, uh, remain, uh, about 20%, uh, right now with the concomitant use of, uh, another, uh, of a, of a, a, stabilizer for the, uh, cardiomyopathy tre- treatment, which were not indicated. Uh, in Europe and Japan, w- uh, we are, uh, indicated with another, uh, with a stabilizer. And as a silencer, I must say, uh, we're very encouraged. By the switches for those patients that are progressing uh, potentially with the with the stabilizers, and, and there uh, we do see the benefit of uh, silencers. Uh, and 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 and, uh, uh, the contribution of switches in both in Japan and major European markets remain a very significant contributor of our growth. John, or does that
2: answer your question?
5: Yes. Yeah. Very very helpful. And maybe just as a uh, follow up. Um, Based on the the combo use trend that you're seeing, just checking if you're thinking about or having conversations with Pfizer um, to potentially collaborate on on scanning or diagnosing or maybe even leveraging the combo commercially as you think about reaching the broader cardiomyopathy opportunity.
3: Yeah, Tolga? Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, uh, having uh, multiple players in this devastating condition is a very good thing for the patients. Uh, and, uh, even though we're not collaborating with Pfizer, I think, uh, if you look at the protocol development in major U.S. centers with the advent of these, uh, uh, treatments, it certainly is helping. Uh, we certainly believe, uh, those protocols should include, uh, genetic testing, which then further, uh, establishes the, the, the condition for polyneuropathy and mixed phenotype patients. So uh, while we're not, you know, in direct communication or collaboration, I can tell you we're all aiming for those patients to get diagnosed as quickly as possible, which we know it takes anywhere between five to ten years uh, and can cause uh, mortality and morbidity. So, uh, again, uh, we're, 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 we're moving in the right direction, in the same direction, but there's no specific collaborative uh, action between the two companies.
5: Got it. Very helpful. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Maury. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Alethea Young from Cancer Fitzgerald. Your question, please.
1: Um, and congrats on all the products. I wanted to talk in particular about um, DaBari and the trends that you're seeing. It seems like, if I'm reading this chart, I'm a little bit colorblind, I think, but, you know, you saw like 7 million plus in sales XUS us and, and 1.4 in the U.S. I just wanted to talk a little bit about how you're thinking about growth trends in the United States um and, and kind of the trends that you're seeing there are unique and distinct, obviously mm-hmm. relevant to XUS. I saw that you had the ATU in France, on so I'm assuming you both that. Thanks.
2: Yeah. Um let me, I'll hand it over to Tolga and, and maybe Jeff will want to say a few things, but let me just, let me just comment, obviously, with Givlari. We, we are, we are very excited about where this product is going. I mean, the impact it's having on patients with acute hepatic porphyria is really, um is really profound and, and, and very impressive. Um, and so we we are we are really pleased uh, with the help that we're providing patients with this uh, terrible uh, disorder. There, there, you know, a big part of the growth story for Givlari this year is going to be geographic expansion with pricing and reimbursement achieved in many um, European countries. Um, because right now it, it's really largely been driven from Germany and and our ATU in France. Um, so we're, we do expect growth coming from geographic expansion, along with new patient finding growth as well. But Toga, do you want to comment uh, more broadly, and Jeff as well?
1: Uh, absolutely. Oh, yes, don't tell me. But um, it, actually, I was asking about Oxlumo. I actually mixed up Oh. Often. Oh, okay. Uh, Sorry. Sorry, my bad. Okay.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for the correction. Yeah. No. Look, Oxlumo had a had a fantastic first quarter um uh, of launch. Uh we're really, really pleased with that. And um obviously it's approved uh in both Euros, Europe and, and the US and uh, was first approved in Europe which is um uh, which is terrific and
3: uh it's off to a great start. Tolga do you want to comment a little bit on some of that dynamic? Yeah, I was all ready for geared up for Ghiblari. I'm I'm gonna switch gears here. <laughs> Absolutely. listen, uh Oxluma obviously uh and and uh is another very, uh, you know, is treating another devastating condition. Uh, we greatly benefited from early access patients in Europe, uh, and majority of our early access program patients were in Europe. Therefore, uh, these treating physicians electing to continue with the commercial therapy, and frankly, went rather smoothly, is the reason why we see a, a good uptake in Europe. The U.S. had fewer EAP patients, and therefore less to convert, but given over 30 start forms in the U.S., uh, we're very confident that the U.S. will be a key driver of Oxluma growth. Uh, I'm also really encouraged the fact that we're, uh, uh, attracting, uh, the, the, the patients that are being treated, uh, are both pediatric and adult, uh, and, and broad EGRF category, with broad EGRF category. So that's also really encouraging. And last but not least, uh, we've been able to already, um, achieve, uh, two-third, uh, access of uh, on the US universe uh, with 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 payers and our value based agreements uh, driving uh, clearly uh, uh, easy smooth access so again it's too soon for us to uh, to to be concerned about us and in fact i'm i'm really encouraged with what we're seeing with the patient start forms which is uh, over 30 right now already this uh, last quarter Awesome. thank you thanks Alicia
0: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line is Salvine Richter from Goldman Sachs. Your question, please.
7: Hi, thank you so much for taking our question. This is Sonia on for Salvine. Could you help frame expectations into the Apollo B trial? In particular, we're wondering what would be considered clinically meaningful and how we should think about potential read through to the Helios B trial. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks Sonia. Um, just as a reminder, I'll, I'll hand it over to Akshay, but just as a reminder, Apollo B is our uh, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study of, of Petisaran in wild-type and hereditary ATTR, uh, patients with cardiomyopathy. So this is the opportunity, um, to potentially expand, uh, uh our, our T-Saran opportunity, um, into that, that broader segment. Um, And so, Akshay, do you want to comment a little bit on how we view uh, success in that study?
4: Yeah, um, the primary endpoint in Apollo B is six-minute walk distance, which is a clinically validated measure uh, in the disease and is, uh, you know, intuitively clinically meaningful. Patients with cardiomyopathies, any form of heart failure, um, struggle with exercise and exercise tolerance, so, you know, being able to walk significantly better relative to the control arm is going to be very important to demonstrate there. Um, And uh, so that the primary endpoint in and of itself will be very clinically meaningful. Uh, Beyond that, we will get a lot of additional data from that study. Um, Of course, we'll be looking at hospitalization rates, mortality. Um, The study is not powered for that, but it will, of course, be important to see what trends we're seeing there. Um, And, you know, in addition to that, a host of biomarkers and other endpoints, such as BNP, um, such as uh, echocardiogram changes um, and technetium and the like. Now, the reason why we feel excited about that whole package and the likelihood of success is that if you go back to the original Apollo study with Petit ran and HATTR with polyneuropathy, um in the cardiac patients within that study or patients that had significant cardiac disease, I should say, uh, we saw, you know, very encouraging findings. Um, we saw, you know, uh, that 10-meter walk test stabilized. Uh, relative to placebo, very deteriorated um, dramatically. We saw that BNP uh, was stable, or slightly down relative to placebo in that study. BNP is an important cardiac biomarker. Echocardiogram showed reduction in the left ventricular wall thickness. Um, and then subsequent to that, other groups have demonstrated, academic groups such as the Gilmore Group in London, and they published this. So they see diminution on technetium scan with evidence for regression of amyloid in the heart, they also saw that by cardiac MRI. They saw stabilization of six-minute walk distance in their on PATRO treated uh, HAT of cardiomyopathy patients. Uh, these are all very encouraging, you know, findings to us that support uh, the likelihood of success with Apollo B. And then finally, um, you know, with mortality and hospitalization itself, post hoc analyses from the original Apollo study did demonstrate um, significant difference. Now, they're post hoc and we should be very mindful of that. But again, an encouraging finding. So, in totality, uh, I think the therapeutic rationale is very strong both for Apollo B and also for uh, Butrysaran in Helios B, where, of course, the study is larger and its power to detect um, mortality and hospitalization changes, and that's the primary readout. Um, and so, you know, I think if Apollo B is positive, which uh, I've given you the reasons why we're excited. We're, we're then very encouraged by uh, the implications for Helios B as a result, and and should speed the interim analysis and so forth of Helios B. Yeah, and I'll just add
2: um, to, to to that um, that obviously we'll, we're expecting data from Apollo B middle 22. We, we do we're on track to complete enrollment in early 21, so just in the next you know period, and then we expect to have data from Apollo B in mid 22. So that is going to be obviously an important data readout um, sometime uh, mid-next year.
6: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
0: Our next question comes to the line of David Lieblitz from Morgan Stanley. Your question, please.
7: Thank you very much for taking my question. Um, If there is – I mean, when there is an an interim interim analysis for Apollo B, um, what, what type of analysis will actually be conducted and is there a possibility that that interim analysis can produce a result that that allows for an earlier, uh, uh I guess, uh, regulatory submission, or or is it really we just should assume thirty months is, is the the only route to to a submission?
2: Yeah, David, thanks for that question. Uh, I'll I'll hand it over to Akshay, and maybe Ivan wants to comment as well. But, I mean, the purpose for doing the interim analysis would be to potentially bring the trees around uh, to the market um, ahead of the final result, which would read out at, at 30 months. And, and so that, that certainly is the intent of the interim analysis to shorten that, that time. Uh, so that, that is why we're doing it. Um, Akshay, Yvonne, any more to add
4: to that? No, not really. I think you covered it, John. I think if Apollo B is positive, then that would certainly be very exciting for anticipating results from Helios B. That would accelerate the interim analysis, gives great insight into the kind of relevant interim analysis to do. And the motivation would be to get uterus patients faster with that IA. Yeah, Yvonne?
6: No, that's great. I think um, I think that's covered it.
2: I mean, the only thing I would say, David, is, is just bear in mind that we, we have not yet uh, resolved the design of the interim analysis with, with the regulatory authorities. We, we, we have, um, the, the, you know, we have in the original protocol um, specified that there would be an interim analysis or there could be an interim analysis, but the final design of that would need to be aligned on with regulators, uh, which is an important step. Does
3: that
7: include the timing of the analysis?
2: Absolutely. The design and the timing and what the endpoint would exactly be, all those elements would be uh, obtained in alignment with regulators. Absolutely.
7: Excellent. Thank you for taking my question.
0: Thanks, David. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Gina Wang from Barclays. Your question, please.
7: Thank you for taking my question. I have one regarding the value-based uh a payment just wondering now you have a three drugs all uh has a value based uh, uh reimbursement um so just wondering what is the real-world implementation and the you know based on current experience roughly what percentage of patients you need to actually adjust uh the payment um or value uh due to lack of
4: efficacy
2: yeah well Gina let me just start um on that really important question, uh, and then maybe turn it over to Jeff to sort of address, um, um, you know, how how that's been handled in the real world. But let me start by saying that um, we're really proud of our proactive approach with value-based agreements with payers, um, you know, certainly in the U.S. commercial market. We've also done some element of that in, in, in Europe as well. And um, I think the results speak for themselves, I mean, because – the, the benefit of these um, uh, shared arrangements with the payer community has been one in which they view Alnylam as being um, uh, you know proactive and, um, and open-minded about value. Um, it has changed the dialogue away from price into a discussion or a recognition of value. Uh, we've been very innovative on that and and of course, The result has been essentially no payer headwinds in the U.S. market and and very broad access that we've been able to achieve for patients. So it is something which uh, we're we're especially proud of, and we, we, you know, hopefully, um, you know, can can demonstrate the innovation on 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 this from a commercial perspective, similar to the innovation we've always had as an R&D organization. So with that, Jeff, do you want to comment on some of the real-world color uh, of those DBAs? Yeah, happy to. And I'll, I'll, Gene, I'll speak
5: to on PATRO. Obviously, that's the product that's been on the market the longest, so we have the most experience there. And, and I will say that the, you know, the, the deductions that we're paying associated with the BBAs that have been signed with commercial payers are extremely modest, uh, at this point. And that's because the product's working well. So, you know, we're not having to make payments, uh, for, for patients that are discontinuing due to an unsatisfactory experience with the product, so extremely modest again, I, I would say, in terms of, of the impact on the deductions that we're
2: paying. And I think the one the one you know index of that, that you that we report on from time to time, Gina, as you know, is the adherence rate being so high with the product, which really speaks to the to how well the the product is performing in the patient community. I think it's fair to say generally consistent with our clinical experience. With 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 uh, you know Pati uh, ran and the Apollo study.
3: And if I can add, okay, anything to add? Yeah. Yeah yeah. I mean, as you and Jeff mentioned, uh, the outcomes of our uh, products and its efficacy is really a testament that these VBA's are working in favor of the patient and payers as well as us. So it's a really a win-win-win uh, situation. Uh, and 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 one should also uh, keep it in mind that. As we design these VBAs, uh, ASP risk is really minimized, and we're certainly not seeing that at this moment, and if if it were to occur, it certainly is minimized in the way we formulate our VBAs. So uh, we certainly don't anticipate any long-term negative impact on our revenues.
7: Thank you very much.
2: Does
3: that answer your question,
2: Gina?
7: Yes, very helpful, thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank
0: you. Our next question comes from the line of Dibjit Chattapati from Guggenheim Securities. Your question,
2: please. Are you on mute, Zipchit?
1: Sorry. Yes, I was on mute. Oh, um, I thought so. So, sorry. This, uh, this is Aaron on for Debjit. Uh, so, congrats on the progress. Um, the AmPetro launch looks like it's going very well. Um, can you tell us what proportion of patients being treated in the U.S. also have uh, concomitant and cardiomyopathy versus polyneuropathy alone? And maybe elaborate on the ramp in diagnosed patients in ATTR? Thanks.
2: Uh, sure. I mean, we answered the first question earlier. You may not have heard the answer, but we can do it again, no problem. Uh, Toga, do you want to handle both of those questions?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first question obviously is, First of all, I, let, let's be clear. Our objective is to make sure that we get to treat as many patients with polyneuropathy condition as possible. In some cases, physicians uh, identify these patients with mixed phenotype, and in those instances, we obviously help support patients to make sure they get access to our medicine if they were on another uh, treatment with a concomitant therapy. That's that's uh, we're, we're pleased with what we're seeing. Uh, and in, obviously in, in Europe and Japan, we don't have this uh, Phenomena, uh, and we tend to build our business with the switches uh and obviously net uh, Naive patients which which again we see a great progress uh, Can you repeat the second question?
1: Just about the ramp and diagnosed patient in ADTR how that's increasing? Yeah,
3: yeah. again, I think uh, you know rising tide uh, lifts all boats, uh, so we do see a great expansion of uh, protocol development in centers of excellence. We see a good referral network with uh, community centers. Uh, as you may know, the PYP scintigraphy scans are really helping uh, and these uh, scans are uh, relatively uh, uh, cheap, inexpensive and, 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 and very accessible. So we see more and more centers are uh, diagnosing these patients and then we do see a, a good uptake of our uh, genetic testing program, Al-Nylam Act, as well. And in fact, the last uh, two, three uh, months uh, of the first quarter, we've seen our highest number of genetic testing. So right now, up to now, we've uh, tested about 36,000 uh, uh, patients uh, that are suspected of HATTR, and we've received a relatively high yield out of these, about 6%. Uh, over 2,000 patients were diagnosed, uh, with, uh, uh, g- the genetic mutation. Uh, so, uh, that's going really well, and we're very encouraged by both the increase of PYP scans as well as, uh, as well as system taking advantage of genetic testing along with on either Mac. Did that Thank answer you. your question?
2: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah.
0: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Paul Matisse from Stiefel, your question, please.
4: Great. Thanks so much. I uh, I wanted to ask one
5: more question about Apollo B, and that's really, you know, how do you think we could end up comparing these data to the Tefamidus data? If we go back to Apollo A, I remember, John, you kind of talking about ahead of those data, a goal to stabilize disease or even reverse it, and that would be unequivocally better than tefaminis. Do you think the six-minute walk test data – from Apollo B are going to be directly comparable to what we have from to feminists in this population six-minute walk, and what would be the caveats in the comparison?
2: Thanks. Well, well, Paul, I'll, I'll I'll just start, and then and then and then I'm sure Akshay will, will, will want to chime in. But you know, in general, of course, comparisons between studies, you know, is something that you have to always take with a grain of salt. There are formal ways of doing it, uh, which may be done uh, by people, um, but ultimately it, it, it is it is you know fraught with caveats uh to to say the least. Akshay do you want to comment a little bit on that further?
4: Yeah, let I mean let me just reiterate because I think it's so important what you just said that um you know Pfizer colleagues uh their investigators did wonderful work and you know they should speak to the value of their results and the implication uh direct comparisons are not uh, not valid really uh, now Having said all of that, uh, at, a, at a very high level, I think what all of us would like to see in this space, uh, patients, investigators, um, and all of us investigating drugs, is we'd like to halt the course of this terrible disease, cardiomyopathy, in these patients. And looking at the published um, Pfizer data with families, um, I think it's fair to say that that drug obviously has a significant, um, uh, you know, impact on mortality and hospitalisation and six-minute walk distance. But the overall feeling it is, is that it's just slowing down the rate of deterioration. And what if we could just sort of halt the disease and extract, stabilize these parameters like six minute walk distance, which is what we very much look forward to doing, um, you know, and showing with Apollo B. Um, the work of Gilmore et which I cited earlier, you know, study of 20 something HAT carameloidosis patients. Uh, where they looked at the cardiomyopathy aspect showed stabilization compared to historic control. Now, you know, that's a single arm study comparing to historic control, but that's encouraging, you know. Uh, and everything keeps pointing to the idea that we could stabilize. Recently, with butriseran in Helios we showed stabilization of BMP versus deterioration of the placebo. We'd seen that previously with butriseran in the original Apollo study. So, um, I think uh, direct comparisons are, are very fraught. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. I-, I think we'll have a similar population in Apollo B, so it would be a valid population to think about the value of the drug. Um, and, you know, our goal is to-, is to show stabilization of the primary endpoint, 6-minute uh, walk distance.
2: Does that answer your question, Paul?
4: Totally. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Paul.
0: Thank you. Our next question comes to the line of Ritu Barrow from Gowen. Your question, please.
7: Hi, guys, thanks for taking the questions. Um, a quick one on the timing of the potential Helios B interim um, am i am I sort of reading between the lines right, guys? You have to meet with FDA before you decide on the interim to get their buy-in um, and that you want the top line Apollo B data ahead of that discussion? Would that necessarily put that FDA discussion in the second half of twenty twenty two
2: well, um, okay, so, first of all, it's the FDA and also other regulators um, that, that have important um, input here on a matter like this, like the EMA. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not just the FDA. Um, but we we um, certainly, the timing of it will probably naturally occur. The timing of that interim analysis will probably naturally occur after we have visibility on Apollo B results, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. the design of the interim, our plan would be to try to, you know, focus on what that is sooner that we have the readout from Apollo B. Akshay, okay. anything,
1: That's ha-
4: mm-hmm. anything to add, Akshay, from your perspective on that? No, I, I just want to, with our announcement today of Helios B enrollment uh, completion by the end of the year, uh, looking very likely now, Um you know, we didn't have that line of sight. We have that now. So the timing looks very, very um conducive that we'll have the Apollo B data uh middle of next year. And, of course, by that time, the, the Helios B study is fully enrolled. The patients have been on drug or placebo for a sufficient length of time, so it naturally leads to a very well-structured and planned IA after that for, for Helios B. Okay. And,
7: and that would, if... Helios B enrolls on a completion around end of 2022. Most of those patients will have been on or for 12 months or more. Do you think that that's adequate powering for an event-based trial based on your internal modeling of what um, TTR knockdown might result in?
4: Well, let's I let's. I think. Go ahead, actually. Yeah, no, I I, yeah. I think reaches that Helios B enrollment of completion end of 2022. Uh, we just uh, saying today that it should be by the end of 2021 based on our line of sight now. Um, so, yes, end of 22 would be about 12 months. Yes, you're right. Uh, as to the exact details of that, I, I, I think we're going to work through that and we'll share in due course. Uh, Read to.
7: Okay. Fair enough. I'll keep bugging you about that. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) last last very quick question, just as far as we think about on PATRO to the end of the year. um, What is your line of sight on potential roll-offs of home administration um, allowances during the COVID pandemic that may be ending over the course of this year, and what impact could that have on on PATRO, do you think? Yeah.
3: Tolga, do you want to answer that?
7: Yeah. Yeah. Look at the end of the
3: day, uh, a lot of uh, payers and, and specialty pharmacies are offering home uh, infusion services. Uh, our uh, payer, uh, our, our patient services program, also does a phenomenal job with side of care and 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 accommodating uh, different uh, routes of of uh, the way uh, the, those patients will be administered. We've seen a good steady uptake even prior to the. Uh, the pandemic, as well as during the pandemic. So uh, those allowances, while they're good, we're the main driver, I believe, for our ability to be able to accommodate those patients that are in need. In Europe, we've seen an uptake from, you know, 9 percent, 10 percent, all the way up to 30 percent home care. Um, as well as in the U.S., we doubled uh, the, the, the amount of patients, but it still represents about one-fifth of our patients that are getting home care. So we're not broadly exposed. The the type of services we provide will continue, so we really don't see that as a detractor of the performance that we have in this business.
7: Got it. And as far as you know, there's no particular time that um, Medicaid home infusion is ending um, sometime in in 2021. Those temporary allowances.
3: That I'm that I'm not aware. I wouldn't be able to uh, speak to that. We've not heard anything. Thank you. We've not heard
2: anything on that. Ritu. Got it.
7: Very helpful. Thank you.
2: Thank you, thank
0: you. And our final question for today comes to the line of maybe Jacob from U p s Your question, please
2: Hi, everyone. This is
7: John on for Naveen. Um We wanted to go back to Helios A and we knew that the severe AE rates were a lot lower for Vutri versus um versus Unpatro, and we were just curious if there was any color you could provide on that.
2: Yeah, Akshay, um, do you do you want to answer that question? This is looking at the um, and 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 the comparison was to the small on uh, patcho arm in the study, I believe, is what you're referring to. Akshay, do you want to
4: comment on that? Yeah, I mean, um, I think you know we're very uh, happy about the encouraging safety data with Butry-Srand and in heliose, um, as we are with you know galnac sub Q conjugates overall. As to you know direct comparison there. I think that the Petit train arm is very small and um, it really it's not an apple to apple comparison uh, when the uh, data are so skewed that way in terms of sample size. So I don't think I'd overly conclude anything. As we were discussing earlier on Patro, the overall safety profile relative to placebo, with, with the most robust test for that, of course, was the original Apollo study. The data looked very encouraging and favorable on Patro in terms of safety. And in the real world, as evidenced by the retention on drug, and um, you know the comfort investigators feel with it, patients feel with it. We're, we're very encouraged. That the real world safety and experience is as good as it was in the original Apollo uh, study. So that's real testament to to how it's serving patients. And you know, and and and
2: um, you know, John, the the lower. Um, SAE rate in the vitriceran vitriceran arm relative to external placebo, we believe is related to the fact that that patients on placebo are probably experiencing disease progression, um, AEs, that that underscores that. Um, So, you know, that's certainly,
4: um, you know, our, our belief based on those data. The other, I mean, just from a mechanical viewpoint, if you see a patient every three weeks for an intravenous infusion you're more likely to hear about a headache or, you know, whatever other intercurrent events is going on in their lives as it does for all of us. And it may or may not be an adverse event. It may or may not, you know, um, be of relevance. So, you know, with the sound being once quarterly, um, you're just not going to, you know, be asking the patient the same questions with the same frequency. But in either case, if something was of significance, it would emerge. Um, and as you said, the overall uh, safety profile for Butressan does look very encouraging. That's very
2: helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Well, well, listen, thank you, everyone, for joining us on the call today. Um, obviously, we're really pleased with our first quarter results in 2021. It was a strong quarter for commercial execution, and we also had excellent progress across our pipeline programs. Uh, and we're really pleased this quarter to have announced our P to the fifth by 25 strategy, which we're – obviously very, very excited about. So we look forward to talking to you in uh, subsequent uh, calls and uh, wish everyone uh, a wonderful rest of day uh, and hope everybody stays safe as well. Bye-bye now.
0: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your participation
7: at today's conference. This does conclude the program. You may now disconnect. Good day.